Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. And happy summer, because tomorrow, June 21st, is the summer solstice, which means it's the very first day of summer, officially, where every subsequent day gets a little shorter until we get to December. <laughs> it's the first day of summer, and it feels like it's already over with that comment, right? Um, anyway, I hope you all had a great weekend. My son and I have had an absolute blast in Montreal uh, at our very first ever Formula One race, uh, the Canadian Grand Prix. Now, I'm recording this, full disclosure, I'm recording this prior to the weekend being over. So in the next episode, I'll have more details about our experience and just kind of what we experienced uh, in this new sport to us, becoming recent fans of F1 uh, through, of course, that Netflix series. So I'll talk more about that um, as as the next episode uh, comes out. I'm flying home today, of course, June 20th, and then back on the road uh, in Wisconsin later this week uh, on Thursday and Friday. Okay, some announcements before we begin, as you know, uh, some upcoming events you might be interested in. That annual conference on assessment and grading is coming up next month in Austin, Texas, July 18th through 20th. Uh, that's going to feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stolitz, and Katie White. In September, we've got the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training. That's going to be in Long Beach, California, September 21st and 22nd. So you want to join me for a deeper dive into sound grading practices and how to develop a standards-based mindset. Uh, join me there in Long Beach if you want. And uh, a heads up on that fall conference as well, the Student Agency Institute. That's going to be in Laval, Quebec, uh, just outside of Montreal, uh, October 24th through 26th. Along with myself, that institute's going to feature Karen Gasseth, uh, Karen Power, Morgan Michael, Katie White, and Andy Hargrave. So all of the information for those events can be found on the Solution Tree website. And I, of course, have links in the show notes for you to follow those as well. One other, uh, one other conference I'm going to be at uh, this fall, uh, the Teach Better Conference. Uh, of course, the podcast is part of the Teach Better Network. Uh, that's going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Lots of great speakers lined up for that. Link in the show notes for that conference as well. And if you are registering, uh, use the code SHIMMER22 for a $25 discount on your registration. Again, links in the show notes for all of those events. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week and a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. As I always say, I really do appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Zaretta Hammond, who is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. And I'm just gonna warn you right now, get your notepad or your notes app ready because there are so many important takeaways uh, from this conversation. And uh, finally, in Assess That with Tom and Nat, Natalie Bardabasso returns, and Natalie and I talk about the non-negotiables versus the philosophical choices we can make when it comes to accurate assessments. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Zaretta Hammond is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by asking two questions. What's a majority? And when does a majority actually translate into a mandate? Now, I think if you ask most people about their immediate response to the question, what's a majority, they would say over 50%. You know, if you get 50.1% of anything, you've got a majority. But is that really a majority? And is that enough of a majority to translate into action? Let's start with an example from Canada, the recent election in the province of Ontario. 
Now, in that election, the Progressive Conservative Party, led by Doug Ford, won a majority of the seats in the Legislative Assembly. They won 83 of 124 seats, so 66.9 or 67% of the seats. So basically, they won two out of every three seats that were available. Now, of course, in a parliamentary system, that is a clear majority. And the progressive conservative government can basically pass any piece of legislation it wants to. Like Now, of course, the legislation would be tested in the courts and, um, of course, tested against what we in Canada call the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But in essence, any law can be passed because the progressive conservative party has a majority. Now, what if I told you the progressive conservatives only garnered 40.8% of the total vote? Now, does that sound like a majority? So with that example, you can see that the only majority that really matters is the seats. Now, for American listeners who may not be familiar with, or, or anyone else who may not be familiar with the parliamentary system, essentially, each district, or what we in Canada call riding, is represented by a physical seat in the Legislative Assembly, or federally, we would say it's represented in the House of Commons. So... Even the leader of the party has to win their writing if they want to sit in parliament or they want to sit in the legislative assembly. So we don't actually vote directly for our prime minister or we don't vote directly for the premier, which is akin to your governor if you're in the United States. Uh, Whichever party wins the most seats, their leader is in power and therefore by default becomes the premier or the prime minister. So in the case of Ontario, Doug Ford becomes the premier of Ontario. Now let me add that only 43% of eligible Ontario voters voted. So you have less than 50% of the population voting. Well, that's on them for not voting. And then you've got the party that has less than 50% of the votes that went to the Progressive Conservative Party. But sure, there's a clear mandate there, right? Now, again, not voting is on them. But is that really a mandate? And is that really a majority? Now, yes, I know that's the system, but not surprisingly, there are once again calls in Ontario, as there have been across Canada, calls for electoral reform. Uh, But listen, don't hold your breath because the party that wins in the broken system will never advocate for the change. Now, let's turn to the United States and a big picture topic and then two recent issues that really illustrate or test this notion of majority. Let's take the big picture first. California and the federal electoral system that seems to be skewed to the minority. Now, California has almost 40 million people, technically 39,664,128 citizens, okay, as of 2022. 40 million citizens in California represented by two senators. Now, to get to California's population, you would need to add up the population in the 23.5 least populated states in the United States to reach California's population. In other words, to reach the 40 million threshold roughly, you need to add the population of Wyoming, Vermont, Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Delaware, Rhode Island, Montana, Maine, New Hampshire, Hawaii, West Virginia, Idaho, Nebraska, New Mexico, Kansas, Mississippi, Arkansas, Iowa, Nevada, Utah, Connecticut, and half of Oklahoma. So if we round that up to 24, 
Those 24 states have roughly 40 million people, and they are represented by 48 senators in the Senate. California, 40 million citizens represented by two senators. Now, if you look at it through the Electoral College lens in the United States, California has 40 million people, as I've been saying, and 55 electoral votes. That means there's one electoral vote per 727,272 people. So if we roughly round that up to 730,000 people, one electoral vote per 730,000 people. The state of Idaho, which is the 39th most populated state, 1.8 million people live in the state of Idaho, has four electoral votes, which does not sound like a lot, and it isn't, except when you say that in Idaho, they have one electoral vote per 450,000 people. Almost double. So a vote in Idaho, electoral vote, almost counts twice as much, because for 850, or for, I should say, 900,000 people, they would be, there would be two electoral votes, and yet... In California, 730,000, only one. You have to get to 1.4 million. So we like the idea of the majority, but do we really like the majority? Or are we so secretly afraid of the majority that we've almost skewed in the other direction that the minority holds all of the power? Now let's take this down to a couple of recent issues that have certainly been in the news. Let me ask you this question. Is 60% a majority? I think most people would look at 60% and say yes. So in a recent CNN poll, 60% of U.S. citizens believe the Supreme Court ruling Roe versus Wade on reproductive rights should remain the law of the land. But the problem is, if the 60% of the population is too concentrated in too few estates, then that opinion will never have any kind of influence. I mean, only 27% of the people surveyed in that poll said it should be overturned. Now, I'm just trying to report the results. I'm not trying to take a position here. But if that 27% comes from those 24 states I was just talking about with the lowest population, well, you can see why gridlock happens because now you've got a disproportionate number of representation. So yes, we say we are in favor of majority and we like the idea of majority rule, but do we really know what a majority is or do we have a consistent understanding of what it is? Do we think 50.1 if the issue is something I agree with and therefore we need 80 or 90% if it's something I disagree with? So if 60% is not a majority, what about 70%? Is 70% a majority? Well, in light of the most recent school shooting in Texas, 70% of NRA members are in favor of comprehensive background checks. Now that number jumps to 78% when you talk about gun owners who do not belong to the NRA. So basically between 70 and 80% of gun owners in the United States want universal background, comprehensive background checks. But the political climate doesn't support anything. Even though there is you know, a little bit of rumblings recently about something possibly happening, but this has absolutely been a non-starter in the United States, despite the fact that 70 to 80% of those who own guns want comprehensive background checks. So again, we say we want the majority, we say that majority rules, but do we actually understand what a majority is or do we 
agree with it, or is it a moving goalpost? Are we constantly sliding the goalposts back and forth? Now, if you were to take that down to the school level, and we think about implementing something at a district, is 51% enough to say, let's move ahead with that? Well, maybe, but when you think about what could 49% of uh, a faculty do to potentially either purposefully or, or inadvertently undercut an implementation effort or undermine it, right? But if we say then 75% is a majority, we have to have 75% of a mandate to move forward, then on a staff of 50, you still have 13 people remaining who could potentially do a lot to undercut an implementation effort, although it's a lot smaller number. My, my point here is when we think about this notion of a majority, I'm not sure we're clear on what we mean when we say majority. I think on paper, we would say 50.1%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I don't think in practicality or in, in, in sort of real situations, we actually subscribe to that and feeling like that's not a mandate at all. So my point here is we have this ideal of majority rule, but we don't because if it's the wrong majority, then there's no action. There's no mandate, right? If the majority of politicians come from the minority of the population, then that's why you have a standstill. And that's why often in the United States, especially in the parliamentary systems, a little more free, especially if you have a majority. But in the United States, this is why you often see the gridlock that happens in Washington, because you have majority of politicians coming from the minority of population, and therefore they think they have a different mandate of what they do. So majority rule makes sense, but I'm not sure we've yet to decide what we mean when we say majority. Joining me this week for the interview is Zaretta Hammond. Zaretta is a national consultant and the author of 2015's Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, promoting authentic engagement and rigor for culturally and linguistically diverse students. She is a former high school and community college expository writing instructor. And for the past 20 years, she has supported schools and other institutions in deepening their understanding and application of culturally responsive practices, which is exactly why I've invited Zaretta to be here today. She currently runs the Culturally Responsive Education by Design online PLC, which is a six-month intensive inquiry-based professional learning experience designed to build instructional capacity to use culturally responsive tools and practices effectively. Uh, Zaretta is a strong literacy advocate for, uh, who also sits on the board of trustees for the Center of the Collaborative Classroom. She's also a member of the advisory board for the Consortium for Reading education. So now, listeners, you know exactly why I've been relentlessly messaging Zaretta to have her on the podcast. So Zaretta, I am thrilled to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm glad we can make it happen. We finally were able to make it happen. Listeners, I'm only half kidding about uh, <laughs> relentlessly pursuing this, uh, this interview. Uh, I've been very inspired by Zaretta's work. Uh, the book we're going to talk about today uh, is, is fantastic. Um, and certainly, I think Zaretta probably realized the only way to stop me from messaging her is to finally agree <laughs> to be on the podcast. So uh, I'm really thankful that you have agreed. So, okay, so let's jump in. Before we get into the topic of culturally responsive teaching, uh, let's start with your background, Zaretta. I, I highlighted the resume for listeners, um, but if you could just fill in the, 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 the resume, the, the highlights of your career, what has led you to this point so far professionally? You know, and, and it's really interesting. I consider myself a 
boots on the ground kind of teacher, right? I've never left that persona and that that kind of image and identity uh, for myself. But my resume started with, um, uh, you know, getting into teaching quite by happenstance. I started as a writing tutor at the University of uh, um, California, Berkeley. And from there really started to see that I was very passionate about uh, education. From there, though, rather than go right into the classroom, where you would think that would be the natural next step, I went into policy. So I spent uh, a number of years in education policy, working for um, organizations like the Education Commission of the States, looking at new policies around goals 2000, back in the day, yeah. um, this, the standards movement, redesigning, restructuring uh, education. There was actually a initiative called restructuring where schools were looking at how do we do something different. So I did that for almost... Um, you know, five, six years. Then I went into program evaluation, looking inside programs that had been funded by the likes of the Hewlett Foundation and the Kellogg Foundation. And these were mostly education programs. And they, a lot of them had a, um, a focus on multicultural education. So I was an education uh, evaluation, program evaluation specialist. I did that for probably seven years. <laughs> All the while, I was looking for ways in which to improve education. Finally, I got so fed up with policy, I said, I got to get closer. And that meant uh, going into a teacher education program. Uh, I did my master's as well as my teaching certificate at the same time. Uh, and I had my son. You know, I don't recommend all of that uh, at once, <laughs> um, but that's where I stepped into the classroom formally. And uh, secondary English education was my jam, in particular uh, teaching composition. My job wasn't to teach English, short stories, all the things that I actually love, but it was to make sure that the students coming to me who were not yet well-developed expository writers, essay writers, argumentative writers, left me more competent in those areas. And I got to see the difference between those students that had had an opportunity for a high quality instruction and those that had not. Um, and so again, continued to radicalize me. And from there, I came out after my time in the classroom, probably a total of five, six years of uh, classroom teaching where I had my own classroom. I came out and started to do curriculum development in my English department. From there, I left and started to do work with intermediary organizations at the start of the education reform movement. Uh, and that uh, continued. I was at the National Equity Project for eight years. I did that work with the Bay Area School Reform Collaborative when the Annenberg grants, large, you know, multi-million dollar grants were going, being given to see if we can do reform, small schools movement. I was involved in some of that as well. So my journey has been in pretty much every facet of the work, but I've stayed close to the classroom. I always make sure I'm working with teachers, teacher leaders, um, being in their classrooms, because that instructional core is really where change is going to happen. 
It's not the standards movement. It's not the policies. All of those are important, but they are not the thing that actually builds student capacity. So that is kind of my trajectory. And, and then I left um, National Equity Project because, you know, they're a leadership organization doing really great work. And I am passionate about instruction, instructional equity. I left and I wrote Culturally Responsive Teaching the Brain, not because I wanted to write this book. Um, you know, it, writing a book is hard work. And, you know, sometimes it's like, I'd rather give a kidney, you know, just take that, <laughs> you know. Um, but the reality is I had a number of teachers roll up on me how I had been coaching. They're like, you need to write this down. And mm. finally, after about the fourth or fifth group kind of just like started to, you know, get kind of loud about it, I just said, okay, I'm going to write it down and I'm going to go back to what I'm doing. So that was, you know, seven, almost eight years ago. And this little book has got, had a life of its own. But those were the ways that I had been training teachers because I consider myself now a teacher educator. And I'm really passionate about making sure teachers that are coming through alternative pathways like teacher residency programs, uh, alternative certification paths really get the same type of um, deep understanding about the science of learning, culturally responsive practice, and that is going to make a difference for their students, right? Putting students at the center, not just some superficial shenanigans that a lot of people are peddling out there. Right, for sure. Uh, you are so right about writing a book as someone who's authored and co-authored several books. Uh, having the book in your hands is a phenomenal feeling. There's no feeling like it. Uh, but my word, that it, it is work. And uh, you're right about sometimes you think I, I would rather donate a kidney uh, than, than, than write another sentence or try to deal with the, the challenges of writing. Okay, so let's jump into this. And I absolutely love the connection because uh, between, you know, the culturally responsive teaching and the brain. And I think the neuroscience is a fascinating part of this. One of the biggest ideas I took from the book uh, is that culturally responsive teaching is not just this checklist. It's not just a bag of tricks, as you say that it is a serious and powerful tool for accelerating student learning. And you make the connection between neuroscience or brain-based teaching and learning and rigorous culturally responsive teaching. So what exactly, for our listening audience, what exactly is that connection? Well, the, the idea with culturally responsive teaching is that you are doing a couple of things. And the first thing I want to you know say is there is a way in which some people come into culturally responsive teaching with a deficit orientation, meaning the reason we do this is because those kids, right? Those, whoever those kids are, right. are broken or they are not motivated. And therefore we're going to use this. This is some gimmick to get them in, but we're really not going to change up a lot. You know, we're going to diversify our library, classroom libraries, or we're going to put social justice themes into the curriculum. What I wanted to help people understand is culturally responsive teaching is a way to help students really regain academic prowess. Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, when she coined this phrase, she talked about the kind of the pillars of it. And one of those pillars was academic prowess. And this is so connected to the science of learning, right? Because only the learner learns. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that we're doing in education. The teacher is busy, but if it doesn't translate to getting the student to do a new thing or having new insights or stretching their, their background knowledge, 
it's not going to happen. So the way I talk about it is on one side, you have high trust in a low stress environment, meaning that teacher knows how to create an environment in which a community of learners can come in. Their learner identity is not in conflict with their racial identity. And the only reason it would be in conflict is because some of the social narratives about students who speak a different first language, uh, students who come from low-income communities, students who may be black or dark-skinned, because, you know, we have narratives around dark-skinned people or anti-black narratives. And that's important. And it's important not as the end point, but it's important because part of what we really have to be able to do is to improve students' information processing skills. And that's very different from, oh, doing critical thinking, a lot of people here, or executive function. Information processing is the ability to take inert information, random facts and figures, mix it together with what we already know on our working memory and turn it into usable knowledge. So this is already in what we know about the intersection of cognitive and and, uh, social neuroscience, right? That cognition has social aspects to it, has emotional aspects. So social-emotional SEL work is connected to cognition, not siloed. So culturally responsive teaching is uh, bringing these two together in a way where it's mindful and responsive to who the student is in front of you so that you're able to help that student get their brain calm and ready and then move into productive struggle without it, you know, raising or triggering some emotional meltdown because you don't see yourself as being able to do that. And this is more than just growth mindset. That's where I hear a lot of people like, oh, it's grit or that's growth mindset. No, it actually is not just that. It is really being able to kind of create the conditions in the instructional core. So Mm -hmm. I connect three elements of the science of learning to that. The idea that cognition, um, social and emotional pieces are all integrated. We know this from the science of learning. And that the brain wants to make meaning. So when we start to give students the opportunity for productive struggle, meaning they're complex ideas to pull apart and put together versus kind of the rote learning. Because we know rote learning does not grow dendrites or gray matter. And that that's what the malleability, that neuroplasticity of information processing does. The more we do this kind of chewing on the content, mixing it with the content that we already know, the funds of knowledge we're bringing from home, then that is how the brain gets smarter. But too often when we're looking at the students that are furthest behind or when we're looking at who's achieving in a school district and who's not achieving, chronically we have poor students at the bottom, Black and brown students and indigenous students, Pacific Islander students at the bottom. And if we keep giving them this kind of pedagogy of compliance, it won't grow brain power. Mm -hmm. So the culturally responsive teaching stands in contrast to a pedagogy of compliance. If I just do this and tell the student to do it, that's going to grow their brain power. We need something that's a little more interactive, a little more maker-centered, because this aligns with collectivist cultural practices. 
Do you think that the as as I listen to you talk about how some some take a, a gimmick approach, a strategy approach, a deficit approach, does that emerge because of how we start with our definition of what success in school is? I mean, let's let's call it what it is. Success in school has often been defined through a white Eurocentric kind of lens. And is that is that part of the reason why educators, either individually or as a collective in a school or a school district, see see students who are culturally diverse as starting from a deficit? I, I don't think so. And I think okay. that's what we usually want to go like, oh, it's racism. I would say that there is the history of what we've done, how we've structured public education. And the, the reason I say that we have to look at the structures, it's too easy. And we see often this happening that it's just people behaving badly. And if we all just had implicit bias training, we'd behave better and then it would be different. Well, it won't because the mechanisms that churn out and sort students and create what I call a cognitive red line are embedded in our system. We, mm-hmm. we in America, we some to some degree in Canada, we can see that with boarding schools and what that curriculum was for indigenous students and, and children, it's predicated on kind of giving you the lowest level of curriculum so that you can be compliant, not so that you can grow brain power. So when we think about what success is in, you know, U.S. schools, for example, it's really not serving even white students. It's speed, mm-hmm. right? If you could do math fast, right, right, it doesn't mean that you understand mathematical thinking, but you just have to be fast. And so again, there are behaviors. You know, do you connect it to Eurocentric culture? You probably could do that. But we still have to look at what are those things we need to change, right? What is that pedagogy of compliance for particular children? And what are the markers of what is a successful student doing? And a lot of those students have a fixed mindset, even if they are white and middle class and look like on the surface, they're not being successful. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to go deeper and a little, little beyond the kind of trope of, oh, it's just racism. And therefore yeah. we just put a social justice lens on it. That ain't helping nobody. And it no. really is not going to help us grow the brain power of children by saying, oh, somehow they need to do something different because that's its own type of deficit orientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I appreciate the clarification there. I, what I was thinking more was not along the lines of that schools themselves or individuals are racist, but that the tradition of school as it was born out of, you know, medieval churches and, and Renaissance uh, sort of the church and how it emerged in North America sort of set a tone for what quote unquote success looks like in a school. What, what does it mean to be a successful student? But I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about compliance. I think we have for too, too long, honored and almost supported and encouraged this compliance, uh, which really doesn't challenge the brain, doesn't challenge thinking, doesn't help the students grow in that matter. I love I love your assertion um, that culture is the way that every brain makes sense of the world and that you highlight three levels of culture in the book. You talk about surface culture, shallow culture, and deep culture. So first, if you would, could you walk us through each of those three levels and then tie them back to culturally responsive teaching. Like why is building our awareness of those three levels uh, so important uh, for us as teachers as we try to continue to be more culturally responsive to our students? So first I just wanna talk about the different types of culture because I do feel like this is a place where a lot of people get really uh, off track. 
So before we talk about the three levels of culture, I just want to talk about diff three different types of culture. Right? Sure. And one is uh, transitory culture. This is the culture of your age group, you know, young adult culture. I have young adult children and mm -hmm. their culture is like, you know, not, you know, empty nester culture. Right? <laughs> these are these are transitory in the sense that we move in and out of them and how we decide to group ourselves comes with a set of norms and beliefs and behaviors. That's all culture is, right? Then there's organizational culture, right? That's the kind of culture that if you go into a corporation or a school district, these, these are the behaviors. This is how we do. This is These are the norms, right? Then the culture that I'm talking about when I dig into these three layers is our nurture culture. That's what I label it, but it really is our socialization from zero to seven. These are the ways in which you learn what's, how close you stand to people, how far you stand to people, what is looking in the eye look like, and all of those things that are a lot of unspoken things that you learn. Like you're not born and someone hands you a handbook that says, here is how you're going to move through this culture that you are born into. So that's the one piece. Now, the reality is, this information is really helpful because when we start to think about these three types of cultures, though, the more we understand their overlay, the more we can use culture as an affective lens. How do we create an environment in the classroom where brains feel calm and ready because there's a sense of belonging, right? It is me and what I experience at home or in my wider community outside of school and the organization that in some ways is being able to be complementary or congruent with that. Then you have culture as a cognitive scaffold. So this is where I use the schema that you might bring as a young adult to help you move through some content if you were say at college or the metaphors I use for young children because it's something that is in their lived experience, right? So those are the types of culture, but let's talk for a minute about this idea of culture and the, the culture tree. So in culturally responsive teaching the brain, I talk about it as a tree. A lot of people talk about culture as an iceberg, like there's some mm -hmm. stuff below the surface we don't see. The reason I use a tree, not an iceberg, is an iceberg is a dead thing. And it doesn't grow. It doesn't change. It's just a hunk of ice not connected to anything. Whereas culture is really about people being connected. You know, think avatar, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they put that little braid into the things. One of my favorite movies are the people yeah. would all link up and then the, you know, uh, uh, the, the mother tree there, right? So mm -hmm. I envision culture as a tree and there are three layers of that tree. A lot of times people start at the top and move down. I think people should start where most trees start at the root. So the first level is actually deep culture. This is again, nurture culture, the socialization from zero to seven, your notions of the cosmology, how the world works, your sense of kinship, what does that mean? Um, you know, communication patterns. Then we move up to the middle, which is the trunk. And that's kind of like the base of a tree, right? So this is where we have shallow culture. And it's not shallow because it's less than. It's shallow because it's right under the surface. Mm. Meaning 
I travel a lot. And when I travel through New York or when I'm coming through Canada, if I'm just there for a day or two, you know, someone's going through Paris and you're not really interacting, they look the same, right? right. I, I really don't know until I've stayed there a few days or maybe a week. And the longer I stay in the first month, I would say, oh, wow, this is radically different. And it's those cultural patterns. Are we standing online or in line? Do we go to the grocery store and get our food? And this is how we do when we go to the bakery. This is what courtesy looks like or doesn't look like. Those are all the unspoken rules that you have to learn when you are moving through a culture. That's shallow culture. Then you have surface culture. This is unfortunately where a lot of people think culturally responsive teaching lives, but it actually lives in shallow culture. But surface culture is what you see, music, art, foods, those with the dance, you know, that's multicultural education. Mm -hmm. And what's important to understand is in that band of shallow culture and deep culture is where we get to use culture as a cognitive scaffold, right? And that's mm -hmm. going to be the most important. Surface culture becomes important because I can use it as that affective gateway. But okay. once I come in, if you're acting and behaving in ways that I interpret as disrespectful, I, I'm not going to feel like I belong. So that you have to know and start to learn. That's why I talk about this idea of cultural archetypes. I can't know a hundred different cultures, but there right. are a few things you can start to learn yeah. that are going to be patterned across different groups based on where they are on that continuum between individualistic culture and um, collectivist culture. Here's the right. other thing I'll say quickly, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Neither one is bad. I see a lot of people demonizing, well, you know, individualistic culture is white and it's bad and it's oppression. No, they're neutral. They're just, it's just culture. Mm -hmm. And everybody has some mix of them. Nobody's pure one thing. And there are white people, white cultural groups, white groups who are very collectivist. You know, you've right. seen some Irish people lately. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. That, you know, certain Italian uh, uh, um, groups and, and yeah. you know, ethnic groups within mm -hmm. that, right? Slavic, all of those folks, Greek, can be very collectivist. So it's right. not a black and white sort of thing, right? No, it's fair. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think that's fair. Uh, I'm interested because you, I think a lot of people may have, uh, my brain was gravitating toward uh, culturally responsive teaching lives in deep culture, not shallow culture so i'm interested to pick up on that well uh so yeah, go what ahead I, what it's, i say is a little bit more than in, that it lives in deep and shallow oh okay so i misunderstood that yeah, yeah okay. so the so the idea is that if i don't understand the schema around the deep culture then i can't act it think of deep culture as understanding conceptually and right. shallow culture is enacting it got it Okay, that makes that makes sense. I, I was I wanted to pick up on that because I, I I must have mis misunderstood you when you said that. The other piece that you brought up, which I want to transition to, which I found very uh, uh, engaging in the book, was this talk about cultural archetypes. The, the, the you know the for me it resonated because I think a lot of teachers look at situations, and especially I work with overseas schools, 
And, and in those situations, there are some schools where there are 60 or 70 different countries and or cultures represented in this, you know, incredibly diverse environment. That's right. So you bring up this idea, like, how do I be culturally responsive to the 19 cultures in my classroom? So, but your, your point is that you, you want to emphasize this idea that students are at the center, not strategies. It's the students who sit at the center. So how do those archetypes help teachers be more responsive to their students in their classrooms? How does that help us with managing a situation where we're trying to figure out how to be responsive to 19 or 25 different cultures in our classroom? Yeah, and I, I do some work with international um, uh, schools as well. And mm-hmm. Part of what I try to help, you know, whether you're in the U.S. and you're in a, a um, you know, Canada or other spaces, and, and this is always happening because it, it, you do have, you know, the United Nations in there. Yeah, and a literally. lot of people will then kind of default to what I call the kumbaya effect. If we just mention everybody's culture, then you're going to feel welcome because we've mentioned your culture. Kind of, it's a small world approach. (laughs) But for a lot of students, when you understand kind of particularly historically marginalized folks, that's not getting rid of some of the bias toward individualistic cultural orientations and ways of being, right? So the idea of responding is not I'm responding to individual students, is those archetypes, again, back on the continuum of collectivism and individualism, you start to see, oh, I probably have six groups that fall, you know, a group that's probably closer to the end of individualism, another group that might be closer to the end of collectivism, two that might be plotting somewhere in the middle. So now the practices of when we come into the classroom are some mix so students can find an access point. So you're bringing them into the sphere of the classroom, the community. It's not that I've got to do this for this one and do this for that one. And then the teacher feels overwhelmed. Oh, I got to remember, you know, your special handshake and your special thing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when you come into the classroom, there are various things that allow you to not only find an access point because it's congruent, but also to learn new things because here's another way of being. And here's what I will say. Historically marginalized students already know an individualistic way. Mm-hmm. They are just not seeing anything that is congruent with their sense of belonging and how belonging looks for them. Let's take talking as one example. In collectivist cultures, regardless of the expression of collectivism, we're not even going to go into that rabbit hole right now, <laughs> but just know that collectivism is expressed differently, right? And within different cultural and racial groups. Uh, but there are still some red threads, and this is the way I talk about it. Those archetypes are the red thread. There are commonalities, one commonality across collectivist uh, cultures is talking, that the social lubrication before you get into any technical thing is to actually sync up and co-regulate in using the terminology of trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive practice, we co-regulate our nervous systems together. Part of that is by the social lubrication. We get oxytocin really high because we may actually have to do 
hard work together, or we may have to have a hard conversation or do some hard thinking. And what we know is oxytocin is one of the things that lowers the cortisol. This is what's so interesting between things that people have done for eons, right? Centuries that when you put the lens of science on it, you start to see, oh, wow, that's what we currently call trauma-informed practices or co-regulation or, right? And the idea is that not that those groups have had trauma, it's just that's how collectivist people keep themselves actually well. Mm-hmm. They don't, it, before any trauma comes, this is why that resilience is there. So talking is one example. Most collectivist cultures, before there's anything to, any work started, there is a small social, small talk, right? In Hawaiian mm-hmm. culture, they call it talk story. Uh, other cultures, you know, it's like we're going to chat, you know, we're going to just like check in with each other, shoot the breeze. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the way most classrooms are designed, let's come in. I'm going to put the do now on the board. Here's, we're going to take attendance. So we go right to the individualistic technical. Mm-hmm. So if we're balancing cultural ways of being, then there should be a way for those students who are regulating through getting in sync with others that we can actually do that. I teach folks how to use dyads, right? An interactive way to do that. How do we use protocols for social? doesn't have to take up a lot of instructional minutes. But when it's structured as a routine, kids come in and know I'm going to have this opportunity And the teacher, when they're being responsive, they know they can tie it to the upcoming lesson. Have a social game that the kids do together. Mm -hmm. And that's the game playing is another way we co-regulate and we sync up and we release oxytocin. We get in sync with one another. These would be all in line with collectivist practices without me having to say, we're going to do a collective practice now. I am being culturally responsive. If you say that, you are not being culturally responsive. Exactly. <laughs> if you're professing your responsiveness, yeah. you yeah. ain't being responsive because yeah. it is hidden to the brain. I call mm-hmm. it hide the vegetables. The brain doesn't know why it's feeling so at home. I'm feeling calm. I'm ready to do this work. It is saying these things without being able to put its finger on why am I feeling a sense of belonging? But what I see a lot of teachers do, particularly white teachers, is they make it technical. Right. We're going to do these handshakes. Well, what about the kids who are ready to get to work? Right. And the handshakes aren't talking. That's you and the kid. That's not them as a community. So there are all these gimmicks that I see that people point to, like, oh, we're doing that. But you really aren't. Yeah. You aren't yeah. giving the student a chance to actually talk at the in the way that they would do it at home or even when the volume goes up, right? Or they're overlapping. We're not turn taking and talking. We're talking over each other. Just like we do when we go out to, you know, Applebee's and we're just in a big group, right? You're talking to this one, you turn and talk to that one. Nobody complains about that, but we over control in classrooms around these kind of technical ways. So that's just one example Mm -hmm. of using collectivist practice, which is, you know, talk, to get social, to get centered, to get ready for cognitive work. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, the, the, you know, anytime you make a, I love that you, anytime you make that proclamation uh, that you're doing something, you're probably not doing something, uh, the something that you're proclaiming, right? That's a, probably a good rule to follow uh, in teaching and probably all walks of life for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Let's finish up now. I, I want to ask you to highlight for us the Ready for Rigor framework, which uh, you say helps teachers, of course, understand the basics of culturally responsive pedagogy and deepens the connection through neuroscience. Those four aspects are awareness, learning partnerships, information processing, and community of learners and learning environment. And we've talked a little bit about awareness through the discussion of uh, the three layers of culture and the cultural uh, archetypes, but maybe walk us through the other three and then maybe draw that their interconnectedness and, and they're not, even though we talk about them as four separate aspects, they really aren't four separate aspects or four separate silos. There's a real interconnected uh, interconnectedness between them. So uh, right. walk us through that framework. Yeah. What, if you see the framework, right, visually, yeah. for those of you that get the book, you can turn to the you know very beginning yeah. that it has the framework. At the center, it's so important because at the center is the student is a cognitively independent learner, that we're doing culturally responsive practices so that we can coach the student to higher levels of cognition, not because he's broken, but because historically schools have redlined cognition and cognitive development. We're trying mm -hmm. to reverse that in terms of creating a different kind of instructional equity experience, but we're also doing that by helping the student strengthen their learning muscles, right? Mm -hmm. So this ability to take information that's inert and turn it into usable knowledge, leveraging their funds of knowledge, the background knowledge that they learn in school. So that's, that's what culturally responsive teaching is about. Mm -hmm. And these elements, right, these dimensions are important in terms of the capacity the teachers need to have. So one is learning partnerships, and it's really important. There are three parts to the learning partnership, building rapport, that's building a sense of friendliness and trust uh, between the student and, you know, your group of students and helping them do that between themselves. But this is really your learning partnership. You leverage that rapport so that you can build what I call that alliance, meaning the student is two great levels behind in reading. Listen, in six weeks, we can get you to know how all the long vowels work. We look at each other and we talk explicitly about, hey, let's get up to that. This is not a contract. I'm not giving a prescription. I'm inviting the student to partner with me. I'm going to do this. This is what you're going to do. And now we're up to it in terms of me changing my coaching moves to coach the student, the student actually looking at and paying attention to their learning moves. So there's a lot more in that alliance piece. And when you do that, the teacher has cognitive insight. The student will reveal themselves because that teacher's ability to build that trust and to use that trust and rapport as fuel to push the stu student with care. So students need care and push. The alliance is where the teacher's coaching the student. And we talk about this as the warm demander, but a lot of ways in which that term has been kind of bastardized, warm, strict, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I'm just kind of holding high expectations. Well, you need to do a little more than hold high expectations because that's about you. You know, you tell the student, well, I hold high expectations. I believe you can. You don't put someone in the deep end of the ocean uh, I mean, of a pool and say, I have high expectations, you can swim, you got to actually teach them how to swim. So a right. warm demander actually has this thing called active demandingness, meaning in that alliance, I'm coaching you. I'm not doing it for you. Right now, I see a lot of over scaffolding. Teachers over scaffold, they spoon feed because the student's not able to take on grade level material on their own. 
instead of teaching the student how to build the capacities to do that, right? So yeah. the that's the learning partnership. So important because it's not something that you'd like, oh, I, I'm doing a learning partnership. Well, not if the student's doing the same old thing and you're still mm -hmm. over scaffolding, right? The goal of yeah. that is both of you can take on new roles. And what are we doing that for? We're doing that for the purpose of improving information processing. That's what the teacher is actually coaching the student. How do I actually do better chewing? And chewing in the information processing cycle is elaboration, right? It's taking what we, new content has to be coupled with old or existing content or background knowledge. That's what cognitive neuroscience says. If you just repeat something, but you've not done anything with it, we have to manipulate it. We have to pull it apart. We have to look at it. We have to have at least two complexities in there. And when we do that, we call that productive struggle. So information processing is actually taking students so that they learn these routine cognitive routines in their own head, mm -hmm. not as a strategy you give them, but it's internalized that when I look at a task, I know how to start processing right. to get to understanding. I pay attention to when I'm confused and that confusion is information to me about where I may have made an error. Right. So there's all mm -hmm. this kind of processing that happens. And it's very different from saying, oh, we're going to have kids do critical thinking. Critical thinking rests on information processing. Mm -hmm. Think of information processing as the base. What I see a lot of people talking about when they talk about culturally responsive teaching is the relational piece. And they right. never get to the instructional piece to improve information processing. Mm -hmm. The last piece I'll talk about is that community of learners. And this is what we know, that that kind of growth in your cognition, ability to grow your learning muscles, learn new stuff, that kind of increase in taking on more rigor or cognitive load happens because we have a community of learners, not just mm -hmm. a classroom of compliant students, meaning kids have structures, they get to talk to each other, they're up to inquiry together, they're experimenting. And so it's in this male view that those students are actually getting smarter, mm -hmm. right? But what we have currently is turn and talk, which is weak, then, oh, we're doing a group project. So the kids that can are usually carrying the group project, mm -hmm. right? There are no opportunities yep. for students to do real kind of cognitive work on their own. It's not maker-centered. So that's really what the framework is trying to get us to do. We need relationships so that we can initiate students into improving information processing. But a lot of people just kind of stop at relationships as evidence of being culturally responsive. And mm -hmm. that's not true. There's no academic prowess in that. Right, right. And that is the key is, is, is creating that increased cognitive load and making sure that we're focused on on those creating that community of learners uh, so that we put students but, and their learning at the center. Yes, but here's what I would say, Tom, just a little tweak to that. Sure. We are teaching the student to process information. We're not yeah. giving them process information. We're setting up conditions for, for them to engage in productive struggle. That's what we're doing. Sure. But they are actually learning how to process information 
better with our coaching. Yeah. Right now, that's not what U.S. schools do. No, and that's fair. Yeah. And I, I think I see a lot of parallels in in the work and the circle that I run in in terms of assessment. We often talk to teachers about the fact that developing your expertise in assessment is not the end game. The end game is you developing an expertise so that you can then transfer that to students and give them the opportunity to be able to examine themselves, to self-regulate their learning, to, to push That's themselves right. to, to so, cognitive rigor. So there's a lot of overlap there for sure. Well, not only is there overlap, it's not, those are two sides of the same coin. Because yeah, this exactly. is what a community of learner does. So one of the things yeah. that I, in the uh, our online PLC, Culturally Responsive Education by Design, online PLC, what we do is we talk about how do you create a culture of error? So when we look mm -hmm. at what is a community of learners doing? Well, they exist in a culture of error. Joe Feldman, I don't know if you know Joe, but yep. Joe and I, this, I told him he needed to write that book. Before even he wrote that book, this is what mm -hmm. he and I would get in the coffee shops and mm -hmm. talk about. I know him through his wife. And I finally, yeah. he, we would have these deep comments like, Joe, you need to write that down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I introduced him to my editor and say, Dan, you need yeah. to you need to yeah. get that book out of Joe because yeah. this is these are two sides of the same coin. It's not right. an overlap at all. And the way that we keep talking about it silos that. So what right. is a community of learners are doing? They're actually learning from their mistakes. That's what productive struggle is. Like, mm -hmm. oh, wow, I was confused there. But look, this is how I got myself unstuck. Now I'm getting together. So I talk about this success protocol. And it's mm -hmm. probably misnamed because it really is about how did I move from not knowing and can't do to this is how I did it. So I'm not right. just talking about my success, but I'm talking about my learning progression. Mm -hmm. Right. So, again, yeah. I think it is uh, formative assessment is a critical part of what exists within that community of learner quadrant. Oh, for sure. For sure. Assessment for me is what drives learning and the ability to recognize uh, where you are in your process, what what you need, what is next for you as a learner? How do you drive that learning forward? Right. What questions do you have? All of that is is so critical. But that's uh, not what we get with the pedagogy of compliance. You look in you, large classes of low uh, income kids, black and brown kids, mm -hmm. kids who are considered, you know, behind grade level. Mm -hmm. That's not what they're getting. No, absolutely. Um, 40 minutes in, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface <laughs> on all of these topics. And uh, listeners, if you're like me, you're probably going to listen to this interview uh, four, five, six, seven times. Bring your notepads. Uh, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation, Zaretta. Two questions left as we yeah. finish up today. Uh, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Uh, the first one, uh, you can take this in any direction you want to, but it's quite simply this. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Uh, whew, two things. One is uh, the fact that so we have um, been derelict in our responsibility to ensure that every child is a powerful reader as they enter late elementary. Um, our hair should be on fire with the number of uh, students who are reading a one to two grade levels behind. And on average, black and brown children get to high school and they're reading three to four grade levels behind. And this is consistent for decades and no one's addressing it. So that keeps me up at night in terms of how do we turn that uh, statistic on its head and how do we make sure every teacher sees him or herself as a reading teacher in a way that I don't need a degree in that. There's some really simple things we should be doing. The other thing is this cognitive redlining, that yeah. the idea that we are not helping students build their 
learning muscles, the ability to leverage neuroplasticity, that malleability by productive struggle. A lot of teachers, and the reason it keeps me up at night is it's not just that we're not doing it for the children. It's a lot of teachers don't get the kind of training in the sciences of learning, cognitive neuroscience, the intersection of social neuroscience, and they're getting these brain bits. You know, the Mm -hmm. idea of brain-based learning as opposed to what, the kidney-based learning? What the (laughs) hell is that? We even say it all the time, the brain-based learning. That's what the brain does. And teachers do not get, they have learned to cover their content, but not how to help students actually learn that content more effectively, AKA information processing. These are not new things that I made up. This is what I do when I write is all this good research is out there. I try to bring it together and braid it together so that it's not only understandable, but actually is uh, uh, um, practical. This is what Ferrari talks about when he talks about liberatory education. It has to have conceptual understanding that leads to informed action and that is, is uh, uh, you know, buttressed by critical analysis and, and self-reflection. So we need to get beyond just covering our content and really thinking about instructional equity. So that's a thing that keeps me, keeps me in my, you know, riding chair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, those are two, two big ones for sure. Uh, last question uh, is about success, personal success, professional success. Again, take this in any direction you wish. Uh, but the question is simply, if a random person stopped you on the street and said, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Oh, wow. I think my definition of success is that every person learns about their themselves as a learner and is able to actualize it, can find their zone of excellence and mm-hmm. zone of genius and figure out how to build their life around the thing that they are gifted to do and feel driven as part of their mission in life to do Mm -hmm. and that we should be able to sustain ourselves, do good in the world um, and not feel the tensions of capitalism or I got to get this job to be successful, but to success is being able to have impact, to give back to the world, to do good and to actually have a life that for yourself feels abundant and flourishes. Yeah. I I absolutely love that. Find your zone of excellence and uh, pursue that. I, and, and finding that would be uh, definitely bring success to anyone's life uh, uh, without question. Listeners, you can and should follow Zaretta on a number of different platforms. You can find Zaretta on Twitter. The handle is at ready for rigor. The number four is in the middle. So it's ready for rigor uh, on Instagram. The handle is at CRT and the brain. So culturally responsive teaching and the brain uh, that's on Instagram. Zaretta's on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. I'll have links in the show notes for all of those uh, social media links, uh, as well as the website, www.crtandthebrain.com. And that's the, uh, the website uh, as well that you can, you can find out more yeah, about Zaretta's work. And I've got my old blog there. I'm not blogging anymore, but no. there's like five years of blog posts there. So it's perfect. Good, good info. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's more great information for listeners. Uh, Zaretta, I, I, this will be the understatement of the year. This was a fantastic conversation. Uh, your expertise and insight uh, is uh, 
is, is amazing. And certainly I've learned a tremendous amount uh, during this interview and uh, would look forward to any opportunities going forward to speak with you again. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to, you know, maybe getting together and talking about formative assessment. One of the Love things that. I actually like to talk about <laughs> as well. Well, I might take you up on that because uh, talking, trying to bring together, you know, culturally responsive assessment practices is something that has definitely been on my mind. So uh, don't be surprised if you get an email from me going forward. Right. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, assess that with Tom and Nat. Natalie Vardavasso hey. is back with us. Good to see you, Nat. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Tom? I'm doing great. Good to have you back and mm -hmm. uh, ready to dig into another assessment conversation for sure. Last time, uh, we, we left off talking about the differences between uh, philosophical choices and non-negotiables when it comes to mm -hmm. assessment. And I, I know that you and I were, were thinking about uh, different aspects. And so I want to kick things off today by thinking about, and these aren't in any particular order, but one of the things that first came to mind as I thought about philosophical choices versus non-negotiables is the idea that a sound assessment practices, the fundamentals of assessment really do provide us with a structure or the parameters or the sort of discipline around assessment that they, and I often say to workshop participants and, and others that they are those bumpers in the bowling alley that we provide to children and be honest, sometimes the adults don't mind that they're there also, uh, but we've got those, yeah, that's right. We've got those bumpers in the bowling alley that provide structure and parameter. And as long as you are following and adhering to sound assessment practices and principles, you get to make choices inside the alley. But if you step outside of your lane, that's where you start to run into challenges. So sometimes mm -hmm. people's philosophical choices take us outside those lanes, and that's where we have to sort of rein things back in. So one of the first aspects of assessment that I thought of when it came to this idea of accuracy is the difference between assessment methods and formats. We know that assessment methods are essentially non-negotiable because the assessment methods are not interchangeable. We know that certain assessment methods are the right fit for certain lear learning targets and standards. But once you're inside the method, now the good news with methods, of course, is that there are really only two or three, depending on how you look at it. There's selected response, there's constructed response. And then when your constructed response is attempting to emulate an authentic context or demonstration, you have a performance task or a performance mm -hmm. assessment. So depending on the lens you want to look at, mm -hmm. but inside the method, you get to make choices. You get to choose. So for example, constructed response, that is a non-negotiable for this standard or this outcome. But unless this is a writing standard or writing outcome, the answer could be in written format. The answer could be an oral response. It could be presented mm -hmm. to you in a number of different ways because you are simply constructing an answer. So that's one of the first ones I came up with is methods are non-negotiable, but philosophical, I don't know if it would be philosophical <laughs> or if it would just be choice. I don't yeah. have a philosophy Autonomy. around fill in the blank, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, uh, but format is where you get some choices. What are your thoughts yeah. on non-negotiables yeah. versus philosophy? Just something I have to riff off there before I answer. Um, yeah. I think there's such a misconception that exists in this assessment space that if you're someone who's a champion of sound assessment practices, you're anti-test, anti you're right. against all testing. And I feel like I, to this day, I have people reach out to me who are so proud that they got rid of the tests. And I'm like, I, <laughs> I never said that yeah. testing was evil or that it's bad. It's just that it has its specific place for a specific purpose. Yeah. Um, 
And if you're going to use multiple choice, like, why are you using it? Are you being very intentional about that? So Mm -hmm. as you were talking, it was making me think more about the concept of being purposeful and what that means in a non-negotiable manner for assessment. Mm -hmm. And I would zoom out a bit too, to say, you have to be very purposeful about what exactly the learning is. Mm -hmm. I find all too often, even if you're in a context that has moved to standards-based grading, people are still trying to exist in that task to task paradigm where yes, you do have a lot of autonomy and independence to decide the kinds of tasks you want to use and, you know, find something on Twitter the day before and pull it in. But it's non-negotiable that you know what the students are learning and how that task actually serves the formative journey to the summative outcome. Um, I find we get outside of the bowling lane to use your metaphor when say you are in a standards-based context and you still are using all the same tasks if you gather all of those and then you're trying to fit them into the standards-based grade book it's a very tricky place to be and you're not necessarily adhering to that that philosophy or paradigm so I think being very purposeful about what is the learning and what type of evidence would I need along that journey and to verify that that learning has happened but being laser focused on what is the learning and it seems so simple but it's really tricky because we have been conditioned to think day-to-day as teachers and be like, what am I teaching tomorrow? What's my lesson plan from those early years of teaching where we were just Mm. surviving and full empathy. I get it. My first three years, I just tried not to cry most of the time, (laughs) but like breaking out of that paradigm and instead saying, okay, I'm going to take a couple hours on a Sunday and get really clear about this progression so Mm. that I can then be in this really responsive, adaptive place where you have a lot of autonomy, but you have to do some of that upfront thinking and it really changes the game. So that's a big one for me. Yeah, I want to pick up on a couple of things there because I, I think you hit on some really, really important points. And let's work backwards here. You talked mm-hmm. about tasks. And that's one of the reasons why I'm often advocating that schools do not try to change their assessment or grading, specifically their grading paradigm, by starting with a new report card or a new kind of uh, computer program or things like that. Because mm-hmm. we have to change the mindset and then we have to change the way we organize evidence of learning. If you organize all of your evidence of learning by tasks and then you're trying to fit it into a standards based report card, it's going to actually be harder for teachers to do mm-hmm. that than it would be easier. And the other point that you brought up, which I really appreciated and, and have often talked about on the podcast before, which is this notion of tests and how we have this bias or this predetermined dismissiveness of an assessment method. Assessment methods are neutral. They're neither mm-hmm. good nor bad. There's nothing inherently better about a constructed response assessment than a multiple choice or, or, or a mm-hmm. selected response. It becomes better when it's the right fit for what you're assessing, yeah. but they're, they're, they're not superior or inferior in and of themselves. They are neutral. Assessment methods are neutral. So mm-hmm. uh, I think you brought up some really good points there. Another one I was thinking of, and it, this maybe goes along the standards-based uh, grading, standards-based learning paradigm. The non-negotiable is about fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and thinking about the fact that the research is unequivocally clear that, that, that the zero to 100 scale is is unreliable, it's inconsistent. And yet inside that idea of fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels, the the research is not definitive about how many levels. So some schools mm-hmm. could choose three, some schools could choose four, some may even go five. I think I would probably personally say that somewhere between three and five is the limit between which we can distinguish. Mm-hmm. But I'm not saying you couldn't distinguish between six. Um, but then it becomes an exercise in adverse yeah. where we say that's excellent and that's super excellent <laughs> and that's very super excellent. But yeah. I would say that the negotiation comes where you get flexibility and maybe that's 
maybe that's where we go non-negotiables versus flexibility because I don't know if it's so much philosophy, but you do have some flexibility in the number of levels that you choose. You're not wrong to have three. You're not wrong to have four, but you you are wrong, if you will, when we're thinking about a zero to 100 scale. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that brings up the non-negotiable of we need to always be keeping our focus on making things meaningful for students. So we had this conversation yesterday. We're like, okay, you have four levels, but could you have a 0.5? Because you know, it's right. it's nice to have that in between. But the first question is, A, can you define what the difference is between the 3.5 and the four? Mm-hmm. And B, when we're doing that, you made a great point about we're actually norming because what we're typically doing is is uh, comparing students' work and wanting this one to be slightly better than this other piece of work. So what we're actually doing is maintaining that paradigm of norming. So I think that was such a good point I want to bring up. Yeah, too, it's true. But... That's that's a really good point because and and, and if I do say so myself. No. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, but what I mean, <laughs> but what I mean is is that I think we get caught up in this idea of comparing students to students and those 0.5s usually emerge in conversations when we yeah. lose focus on the criteria. We, we aren't, mm-hmm. fo- we, we start saying, well, well, Natalie's essay is a little bit better than Tom. So how do I distinguish between them? And that distinction is sort of unnecessary yeah. when it comes to that. Anyway, keep yeah. going. Yeah. It, it becomes a reward, right? It's like, I right. need them to know that I think they're a little bit better than this other one. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly know why it's just kind of a, because again, for me, the non-negotiable is that we are trying to create meaning for students. And when we're doing that, it's really about some weird internal monologue that we're having that comes from a whole historical context. And it's really not about the students understanding because they're not going to know exactly what makes them a three or a 3.5. So when we talk about those levels, trying to make those clear and transparent to students, being clear and transparent about the success criteria for a task, the learning target for a lesson, putting it in language that is accessible to them or even better, including them in the process of helping to define what that sounds like. And then for me, uh, around feedback, we spend so much time trying to figure out how to give better feedback, how to support our students to use the feedback. I don't think we often ask, do my students understand the feedback? We focus so much on how I give it, when I give it, what it looks like. Do I focus more on strengths? Do I focus more on areas for growth? But do we actually verify that they've understood it? We have such a different lexicon of words that we have as adults. We have a robust lived experience that they don't have that we say something or we write something and they often nod and smile because they're trying to be respectful in the institution of school, but they, then they go to sit down and they're like, yeah, I think they said it was good. I think it was good. Yeah. <laughs> I <have> no idea. <laughs> so actually asking and engaging in some kind of a dialogue or even better getting them uh, with their peers because they're closer in terms of life experience and the biases that they might be bringing to that task and having them have an orchestrated conversation. So there's more chance that they'll understand one another. I think that's really important. Yeah. That they can consume the feedback that they understand what it means. And I think one of the ways that we can work, not work around that, but work kind of with that is to, instead of, you know, one of the questions I ask a lot of participants recently, and I'd say by recently, I mean the last year or two, is when you look at how you provide feedback to students, are are you providing feedback that causes thinking mm-hmm. or are you giving your students a set of directions? Because if yeah. you're giving them a set of directions, then it's your learning. I had this conversation with a school mo- yeah. recently, just in the last couple of months, which was about corrections. And the question they posed to me was, Tom, if we give feedback and students do corrections, you know, when we give them credit for their new level of understanding, is it really their learning? 
And I said, well, that's how you distinguish. Is your feedback a set of directions or is your feedback causing thinking? Because if it's causing thinking and they have to contemplate how to actually execute the improvement, then that's mm -hmm. their learning. But mm -hmm. if you tell them what to do, then that's your thinking, right? So yeah. it isn't so much about now, now you get back to what you were talking about. You get back to this idea of can my students consume what I'm telling them, where they don't really have to necessarily consume everything is I'm causing them to think, whether it's through a yeah. highlighter, a passage, something yeah. that allows them to think that way. So I think that's a really good point about making yeah. sure that students have access to the feedback we're providing to them so they can actually act upon because as you and I both know, and everyone knows, it's not the existence of the feedback that causes more learning. It's the it's the doing something with yeah. the feedback that actually makes the biggest difference. <laughs> exactly. So to, yeah. to, I want to dig into that a little bit. I have a question sure. to throw back at you. I often oh. hear the philosophical stance that, but I don't want to make things transparent to my students before we begin, because that's like cheating, you know, like they, I want them on your point to be thinking and to figure it out. So if I'm too clear about what criteria or what success looks like, I'm just going to be telling them what to do. How do you respond when people say something like that? Well, how, what do I say versus what do I think? Um, <laughs> Go with think. That's more fun. <laughs> okay. Well, what I think is that's complete bullshit. Um, hey, but, yeah, there it is. But, uh, honestly, uh, because, and here's, here's how we drill down to this, Natalie. And, and, mm -hmm. and this is a question that I think cuts right to the point. And, and I think you've heard me say this before and listeners, you've heard me say this on the podcast as well. Uh, if you wouldn't accept that in your professional life, then it's not okay for students. The idea that you wouldn't know, imagine going in for your teacher evaluation or appraisal or however your system works and your principal is at best opaque about the process. I'm not gonna give away the answers. I don't wanna give you the criteria for what excellent teaching looks like. I, I'm just going to, I, hey, I've been assessing teachers for 20 years. Just you go teach and I'll let you know how you do. There's not a teacher on this planet. Now you might not have control over changing the system, but there's not a teacher on this planet that would accept that and be okay with that in their professional life. Suddenly when it becomes students, we don't want to give away the answers. Sure, you don't want to give away the answers, but students should know how they're being assessed, what types of questions will be on the assessment. This is when people say to me about reassessment, but Tom, what if mm -hmm. kids just blow off the first test and try to get a preview of the test so they can do better on the reassessment? My first question is why do they need, why do they have to wait until test day to get a preview of what's going to be on the test? Not the questions, but the <laughs> topic. So, yeah. so one, what I think is, that's just bullshit. It's a complete excuse. Uh, but what I say to that person is that question. So I think it, I don't yeah. say it. But what I yeah. say is, would you accept that in your professional life? And I actually have to tell you that it's one of the most effective questions I ask of participants because it gets right to the point. If your yeah. principal was doing that to you, or if your superintendent was doing that to you as a principal, would you be okay with that? Would you be happy with that? Again, no. you might not be able to change it, but would you be happy with that? And that's, mm -hmm. that's the point I was trying to make. Yeah. And then you feel like your whole life is just about managing that relationship to stay in good standing. And it's not even right. about the learning or the job anymore. It's about mm -hmm. sucking up to the people above you. So they like mm -hmm. you and hopefully give you a good review. You made mm -hmm. a really, as you were talking, I think there is such power in analogies in this assessment work. And someone was telling me just two days ago that you have an incredible analogy around pancakes. And I know we're almost at the end of our time, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking that that could be a great place to pick up for next time is talking about the analogies that we've used or that we've seen used in this work that just takes something that could be seen as too complex and too academic and just right. bring it down to a very lived real human place. 
Do you want to yeah. go there next okay. time? We, we absolutely. The analogies, there's the analogies of practice and games, rehearsal performance. There's the pancake analogy. I'm, I'm full oh, of analogies. So many. And, sure and I mean, it's so also first thing go. in the morning here and I'm hungry. So I, maybe I was just thinking about pancakes. <laughs> that's, but, that's right. You know. Let's pick that up. So we'll start okay. next time uh, with the pancake analogy and what the implications and, and why I go through that and, and sort of uh, what that sort of sort of talks about in terms of learning progressions and criteria, uh, standards, yeah. outcomes, cognitive complexity, all of that, all out of one little pancake. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that next time. Wow. Uh, <laughs> our time is up, Natalie. Uh, great to see you again and great to chat with you. Uh, look forward to next time. Always a pleasure, Tom. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you've got questions for Assess That with Natalie and I, or if you have any suggestions or feedback about the podcast. And a reminder also to check the show notes for the links for the upcoming professional learning events happening this summer, but also into the fall. Uh, the next episode will be Monday, July 4th in two weeks, where my guest will be Tyrone McNeil, who is the president of the First Nations Education Steering Committee here in British Columbia. So we're going to talk about Indigenous education, which is something we have not really talked about much on the podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Happy summer, everyone. 